Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, a special edition featuring highlights from BIO's 10th annual conference held on May 18, 2019 in the Leon Levy Center for Biography in Midtown Manhattan. The conference panel, Telling Life Stories in These Chaotic Times, featured publisher Tim Dugan and literary agents Catherine Flynn and Sarah Burns. The discussion was moderated by biographer John A. Farrell. This is the panel called telling life stories in these chaotic times. And mostly, it's going to be dedicated to the chaotic times in publishing and what the marketplace looks like. But we're also going to talk a little bit about subject matter if there happens to be something in these chaotic times that breaches the other rules of uh, of the market. Um, You just had a wonderful, or I just had a wonderful um, inspiring, thrilling plenary session with uh, great minds and wits from the New Yorker. And uh, you're all inspired and hopeful and ready to go out and write, and we're going to pour water all over it. <laughs> um, if, if they were Annie in Tomorrow, this is uh, Agatha Hannington <laughs> and Brewster Hannigan and Lily St. Regis. Um, and we are uh, going to talk about the hard knock life rather than Tomorrow, tomorrow. Um, the best that we probably can say um, is that uh, biographers should um, present themselves to this uh, grim setting, and I'm hopefully that you're going to dissuade me from being so pessimistic, um, with the same way that, uh, that uh, Arya did in Game of Thrones when the Red Witch comes to her and says, what do we say to the god of <laughs> And Arya says, not today. Um, But with that in mind, I want to read um, some awful statistics from the latest uh, Authors Guild survey. Um, The largest survey of writing-related earnings by American authors uh, published in January shows that uh, incomes from being a writer have fallen to an historic low, a median of $6,080, down 42% from 10 years ago. In 2007, you could make $12,850 a year as a writer. Uh, This year, you can only make $6,080. Earnings from book incomes alone fell even more uh, as writers try to supplement their uh, incomes by um, uh, public speaking and other other ways. Full-time book authors still only earn a median income of $20,000, well below the federal poverty line. Um, As uh, Richard Russo, the vice president of the Authors Guild said, there was a time in America not very long ago that dedicated, talented fiction and nonfiction writers who put in the time and learned the craft could make a living doing what they did best, contributing enormously to American knowledge, culture, and arts. That is no longer the case for most authors, especially those trying to start out their careers today. And uh, our friend T.J. Stiles, ace biographer, Pulitzer Prize winner, um, said, poverty is a form of censorship. 
That's because creation costs. Writing requires resources and it imposes opportunity costs, limiting writing to the financially independent and the sinecured publishes authors based on their lack of wealth and income. So one of the great things that Bio, that bio does, aside from um, this uh, uh, conference every year, is to uh, begin to fund um, small but earnest and hopefully growing sources of financial help, uh, especially for starting, um, starting out authors. Um, we have today um, a publisher and two book agents. Um, I'm not going to um, read their uh, bios because they're um, uh, in the manual, but I'm going to ask you uh, all to just very briefly um, introduce yourself and um, say whether I am far too gloomy or whether I am actually sugarcoating it. Okay, well, I'll start with that last part first. I think not today is my <laughs> uh, position on this subject. Um, I'm Catherine Flynn. I'm a um, literary agent, a partner at Nearman Williams, and I represent about 80, 85% nonfiction. Um, and that's all pretty serious nonfiction. It's history, politics, science, biography, uh, current events, um, memoir with some other element like that in it, um, and uh, sociology, psychology. My attraction um, to book authors is uh, about expertise. Um, and I imagine my panelists share that feeling, that what I want is to represent um, people who have passion and expertise. Um, my name is Sarah Burns. I'm an agent um, at the Gernert Company, and I represent um, biographers, critics, uh, also fiction writers, and some children's fiction writers. Um, I, in terms of this organization, I work with the Ruth Franklin, who I'm incredibly proud to represent, um, and uh, Abby Santamaria, who's writing a biography of Madeline Langle, uh, which is a kind of lifetime passion project for me. Um, um, so I, uh, I'm going to hijack this for just one second, um, because um, uh, you sent us a quote um, that uh, Madeline McIntosh uh, said uh, um, about the industry saying, sorry, she's the CEO of uh, Penguin Random House, um, and she said that... Um, Publishing was a business of talk and people, opinions and emotions, where debate and discussion drive decisions. Amazon removed the personal and political from decisions and figured out how to boil them down to math problems. So I, I thought that was incredibly well said about this kind of predicament of where we are as an industry, and I emailed her to tell her so. Um, so I, I have a few little statistics that she emailed back to me that she uses in these situations. Um, yes, thank you. Um, which is that she says, contrary to popular opinion, physical books um, in aggregate are doing fine. Uh, total U.S. physical market is up about 2% um, every year for the past few years. Um, 
Ebooks and mass markets are down, but that's not a market that really biographers participate in necessarily. Um, and biographies do do well in audio, and audio is the one sector of the marketplace right now that is really growing and thriving, um, and there's a lot of really interesting kind of creative stuff going on there. And independent bookstores are also doing well, and that's where those, where uh, again, those are the outlets where biographies sell. And I just want to say, like, Ruth wrote this um, amazing biography of the writer Shirley Jackson, and one of the things that really struck me as I was reading that book was that so she was a writer, her husband was a writer. Uh, it was hard then too, like it's always been hard. And the thing to hold on to is just um, do your work, build your community, and get it out there. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm Tim Dugan. I'm an, uh, an editor and publisher of an imprint within Crown, which is within Random House. I've been doing that for about five years. Before that, I was at Harper for many years. Um, I guess my, and I, I do all kinds of books and all kinds of genres, but my background um, for a long time has been in history and biography and politics. Um, but uh, my stab at the um, kind of doom and gloom question and the question of just um, financial sustainability of this is uh, I think the overall... Um, view of the market, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about it, and I think that um, you sort of have to make a distinction, certainly when you look at Madeleine McIntosh's quote about data and how much it means now, I think that it really relies more on um, the retail market than in terms of um, acquisitions. So there's, there's buying in publishing and there's selling, and in my role I do a little bit of both, you have to, but as an editor, and for, for our purposes, what we're talking about today I think mostly is about buying. It's about the process of discovery and finding books. I don't personally feel that data and analytics um, has changed the core of that very much at all. I think all it does is it gives you a little bit more information. Every um, few years that go by, you can refine how you're able to um, see what books are selling, how they're selling, what channels they're selling, um, and that's something you can do very quickly now, and it helps, but it's, um, it's just looking at, at, at what other books that are comparable, um, how those have sold, what an author's track record might be, how those have sold, but those are never really going to be um, you know, determinative. Um, you're really going to sign up a book based on, I still think, the feeling that you feel when you read the proposal or when you read the manuscript and how it moves you, and that's sort of how readers respond to when they read a book. Okay, so without giving away any trade secrets, if you can, pick a time in the last month, six weeks, since Christmas, where you either felt, as a professional in this industry, a moment of great exultation over somebody who walked in out of nowhere and gave you a piece of art that just dazzled you, or, you know, not to dwell on the downside or uh, a feeling of dread and disappointment because you heard a great story about somebody who you believed in who the, the market wasn't wasn't ready for um, I'll, I'll, I'll take this one first um, I recently sold a project that was um, a hybrid biography and philosophy um, and that was new for me the prof it was by a philosophy professor she was writing about an historical subject, and, um, and she was using the subject to talk about concepts of political activism in, a in the philosophical sense. That was her background. Um, and I thought that was a totally brilliant approach to biography, and it is. Um, but when we took it to market, we had a spread of, you know, the, the very serious, great um, 
commercial nonfiction houses, and then we had a series of university presses. And interestingly, it was ultimately the university presses that were more open to that hybrid approach. Um, I did not go into that experience thinking that would be the case. I wanted to go to both the, you know, sort of the top university presses that have trade publishing programs and know how to do it, but I also wanted to go to the commercial houses and thought the commercial houses would be much more comfortable. Um, but in fact, the, the, it was the university presses, and I have seen, and, and I imagine um, you have too, Sarah, that uh, university presses in this era are actually getting a lot smarter and more creative and more flexible about how they think about their publishing programs. And, um, and that was a positive surprise to me. At the same time, I was seeing that the commercial presses were nervous. They wanted, um, the historian to write the history, the work of history, and they wanted the philosopher to write the work of philosophy. And I, um, I was surprised by that narrowness. Is that like a casualty of hard times? The ability of, of somebody to to be there when this guy walks in and he says, "I want to do this series of movies about Indiana Jones and <laughs> and the old serials from the 1940s." And well, there's no that nobody's hit with that recently. Or George Martin walks in and says, "I want to write seven volumes about you know dragons and." Um, and lusty maidens in the uh, this place called Westeros is 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 are, are, are have we become more like Hollywood where you, where we're looking more to sure things and those sure things support the rest of us. Can I can I sure. jump in here because I think the the um, I actually do use Hollywood as as an example of kind of the structure of our industry because yes we have the kind of the big boffo. Um, hit authors, you know, Stacey Shift, Judith Thurman, um, but also um, there is the, there's the kind of, there's the indie mode, which is the, or, or it's kind of sector of the marketplace, which is the small presses are thriving, the, the university presses are thriving, like there, there are kind of different pockets as, as publishing you know, there are now five big publishing houses. That is a reality. We have five buyers on the commercial side. Um, but the, 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 the culture of the marketplace is, I think, kind of catching up to that, which is that there really are opportunities in university presses and, and small presses. Um, like at Yale, for instance, you know, doing their Jewish Lives series, you know, that is, that's really a thriving kind of line. Those books actually sell. Yeah, and those books actually sell, exactly. I mean, one thing I think we need to talk about, um, because it, it's a reality, is, um, is the T word, which is track, um, because that is what I, I mean, I would love to know what you think. I mean, uh, if I go out with something by somebody who has published a book, Publishers will say to me, well, I, I didn't think they did this well enough, when really what they're saying is, we can't surmount the, tr the sales track in this project. And that is, um, and, I, and I think that's a reality, and you, you can, you know, I rail against it, but... So, um, well, <laughs> you should explain what sales track is. Very, very quickly, just what the author's sales of their last book were. Um, I think the, that it does seem like an obstacle, but I think that um, the upshot is that uh, the pace of things are now so fast, and certainly in the retail world, that if it's more than, I'm generalizing, but if it's more than about five years since the last book, and the last book had low sales, if, if it was eight years ago or 10 years ago, and a very different subject, it, it's not as relevant. Um, so you can, that becomes much, much more surmountable. So it's not a ball and chain. 
And if you can tell a really good story about why this subject will have a better sales track record, that can work because I, I find that publishers are still buying on passion and if you tell them the story that they fall in love with. Um, I've actually had a really good couple of weeks All right. <laughs> um, on a, a couple of different projects. Actually, a, a, um, a, a writer whose track was a little wobbly um, but ended up getting um, preempted by somebody because they loved it. Um, and um, uh, uh, this, I'll, I'll tell a, another a different story, though. A, a young writer who writes for the New York Times magazine um, wanted to do... Um, uh, wanted to write a book on a series of figures in South India, starting with St. Thomas, um, and um, and whether or not he did or did not go to South India. And then uh, two contemporary stories, all three of them to do with a true crime story. And um, the publishers came back to us and said, this hybrid structure is not working with for this, but we love him. Can we can we have a conversation with him about how he can kind of reconceive it? Um, and that project actually eventually went to auction, and it was v- incredibly gratifying to know that we were we were all rooting for this young writer, and a- everyone everybody kind of pitched in in a way that was kind of creative, and um, uh, and I think the the book will be great when it comes out. I'll just tell you about, um, uh, I guess, the story of the last book that I published a couple of months ago, which I had a sort of roller coaster of emotions um, from excitement to dread and fear to then excitement again, which was uh, a book about climate change called The Uninhabitable Earth. And it was a young journalist, and it was his first book. And it, it, uh, I was excited about it because I thought the proposal was totally dazzling, one of the best proposals I ever read. Then when he started writing it, um, I was worried that um, it came directly out of a magazine article. The, the headline, the title of the article, was the same thing, the same title of the book, um, and no real book on climate change, with the glaring exception of um, Elizabeth Colbert, has really ever sold well. It's just a, a, a like very, very kind of Bermuda Triangle um, category of books. Um, and I, I made a big investment in the book, and I was worried that it might not work. And it, it worked to a degree where it found its audience. And I think it's hard to say what the reason for that was, but I think it was... Um, Let's give this person some... Uh... <laughs> yeah, I, uh, David Wallace Wells, okay. uh, and he's a journalist at New York Magazine. Um, but I think he wrote it in such a way that he was struggling to find. He'd read everything about climate change, and he wanted. He thought that somehow it wasn't actually emotionally resonating with him as a reader. Um, he's both a writer. He's really more of an editor than he is a writer. So his day job is as an editor, and he wanted to find a way to write about it in a way that had some um, some pathos and felt different and made you actually feel it and made you scared. His goal was to scare you into caring about climate change. Um, and to that degree, it was effective. But I think one of the things about this, too, one of the lessons for me was um, going back to the question of data. Um, I think in between, one of the reasons why data, no matter how good it is, is limited, is that you know that even in, for this book, which is a pretty compressed time frame, like the article itself that it was based on was only about two years ago. He wrote the book in about um, less than one year, and then it was published in about six months. That's a tight, that's a very unusually tight time frame. Um, but even in that time frame, um, the, the process of conceiving of a book selling it to a publisher, and then writing it, and when it comes out, in that scope of time, not only will the book evolve, but the world around you is gonna change, and the economy is gonna change, and the culture mm-hmm. is gonna change, and in the, in the maybe six months between when he was finishing his book and when it came out, 
everything outside of the book in the world of climate change <coughs> had changed because there was a UN report. People just decided there was an urgency about this that they haven't had before um, that there was no way to have predicted. Yeah. So. Do, you, do you think there was a mechanism in the marketplace that helped the success of that book or was it just the, as Jonathan Glassy once said to me about the success of books, a, a concatenation of things. I think it was, a, no, it's a great question. I, I think what happened was that it, sometime around that UN report, which was last fall, that actually, he wrote, so he wrote an article called The Uninhabitable Earth, and a lot of people read it, but uh, there were critics too who thought that it was tonally alarmist, and it seemed hyperbolic, and you shouldn't try to scare people, that's actually ineffective. Then about five months after that article, the UN writes a report that in kind of bureaucraties, essentially said the exact same thing that he's yeah. saying, mm -hmm. and, and that, when that happened, it gave his original um, essay some newfound credibility, and it made it harder to criticize it just on the merits of alarmism. So something sort of changed um, in the environment where people were, um, people were looking at this in a different way. I also think that's a good example of an author really knowing his stuff and being mm -hmm. ahead of everyone else. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. So we've heard the word proposal. Um, and I have an agent who is infamous for putting his uh, writers through hell, uh, writing the proposal. How important is the proposal still? Because uh, we, we have a mix of people here, but, but we want to keep in mind um, the, you know, the, the young, young authors, first time authors, um, and particularly in biography. I think it's essential. I think a good proposal is everything. It's, it's how you get a good financial deal. It's how you get the right editor uh, who fits your project. Um, it's how you, you know, in early stages, a sort of proto-proposal is sometimes how you get your agent. Um, it's, um, it's how you, once you get the book deal, you have a roadmap to write the book. Um, it's how you often get good fellowships. I mean, it's just the foundation of the whole commercial aspect of the project, as well as the creative roadmap. I, I think it's essential, and I also beat my authors up about proposals. Yeah, I, I, the, the, the piece of advice I have for you about that is that if you ever get to the point in your proposal writing where you think, like, oh, I don't really need to do that, I'll, I'll just wait and see what people say, do, do, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Keep going. Do, keep going. Keep going. Do the work. Um, but I, I have my, I mean, I, sometimes my clients send me and they work and they say that. And I think like, no, you can't, you're not, you are not going to get what you want out of this situation if you, if you have that feeling. I think the roadmap idea is interesting too, because I see the proposal as a balance between as you say, a roadmap where it's forcing the author to actually think through how they're going to write this book and outline mm -hmm. it, and they don't it, just to make it seem uh, realistic and practical, and you know exactly how it's going to, even though you know it's going to take turns down the road, and it will take years, and it will, it will morph, um, but at least you have a sense of how it's going to work, and that it seems it seems doable um, from beginning to end, and then you have to balance that with. Um, a sort of salesmanship where you're not trying to sell it um, per se, you're trying to get, the way I like to think about it, is you're trying to get an, an author to be as excited about it as you were when you came upon this. And if you think about it that way, that's the best way to do it. Um, then someone can really feel it. In all this discussion, is there anything that we, that biography stands out as a outlier or um, is this, uh, are these pretty much universal rules for nonfiction? Is there anything special a biographer needs to know when they come to you um, 
either as an agent or an editor. I think writing, in, in your proposal, writing about your source material is especially critical for biography. Um, you want to brag about all of the new access that you have that no one else has ever had. You want to talk about the you know, nine archives in nine states that you've gone to that really shows you're serious and know your stuff. That, um, you know, there are some other kinds of history projects, for example, where you would also do that, but that's not something you're doing for most projects. In fact, with most of my authors, I don't even include a sources section, but I would essentially never forget to do that with, or never not do that with biography. Right, and I think, and a, the corollary to that is also about um, access. Like, I, I was, when uh, in the, the panel just before this, um, the question I would have asked was, you know, if you're writing about a writer or you're writing about a subject with an estate, how do you manage that situation? Um, because that's a question that needs to get answered in the proposal stage because the, the publishers will ask about it, right? Yeah. You, you'll want to know. Um, in my experience, strangely too, all those both totally apply, but the last two biographies I've published, this, this was never really a question because one was a biography of Nietzsche and the other, one was a <laughs> was, the other one was a biography of Nadar. And there wasn't really anything new to boast about or brag about in terms of source material. And what I think attracted me um, to both projects was just the sense of style um, in the proposal and the sense of writing. They both had a feeling of being kind of offbeat and kind of eccentric and just a little bit different, and it was tantalizing. Another question that just popped in my mind, why biography and audio? What makes those two go together as pleasantly as they're going together? I, I don't know the answer to that, actually. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an avid audiobook listener myself. Um, I don't, I'll get back to you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want, I, I'm speculating that. So um, biographies tend to do really well in what's called the front list, meaning that when they're sort of initially published rather than you know, having a long, long tail where a lot of their sales are many, many years later because they're, they're the, you know, the big book of the moment. They're the new take on a particular person. That's not to say there aren't biographies that sell for many, many, many years and get adopted in, in courses and so on and so forth. But, um, but they're sort of seen as, as front list books rather than back list books. Um, and front list books tend to, tend to do pretty well in audio from what, from uh, what I've that's heard. That's interesting. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay, somebody in the, in, in the panel um, this morning, those guys from that magazine, um, <laughs> uh, talked about um, there being like a generational uh, cycle, um, that uh, um, there is no such thing as a definitive biography, that every generation gets to do its John Adams, everybody gets to do its uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And as a second wave baby boomer, I've always felt that the first wave baby boomers got to the subjects first. So we've had... We've had Jefferson and Jackson, we've had uh, Mantle and Koufax and uh, Babe Ruth, um, all by my contemporaries. Um, is there like a generational line now where we're just sort of waiting for the millennials to start writing biographies about the founding fathers and, and they're going to bring some sort of new approach to it? Well, you know, I'll tell you a book I was thinking about this morning actually was um, The Hemmings of Monticello that I think... We, if we get a bar, new biography of Jefferson, it's not going to be the the Hagiography that that he got before, and that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's a, obviously a lot of really good scholarship going on, you know, about the 
the, yeah, yeah. the, the founding era. Um, and that's what I hope, really. Is this something that, I don't mean to leave out the generations between the baby boom and the millennials, but um, is this something? I'm Gen X, by the way. <laughs> um, but is this something that, I mean, do they buy books? Do younger folks still buy books? Yes. They do. Okay. Yes. What do they like that's different from what we like? My, my guys like, my generation like. I mean, I, I think the um, white, great white man history by great white men is a problematic, yeah. it's, pro, it's, a, it's a problematic moment for that construction around a project. Um, and that's a good thing. And so it's a very good thing. Um, so that, so I think now the sort of younger generations, they're looking for, um, they're paying attention to sort of who the authors are of things and what the authors background and credibility is for, for writing about this particular subject. Um, they care about the identity of the writer in that respect. Um, and so I think you're seeing more diversity and then uh, of authors and more diversity of subjects. We have a, an, a hugely long way to go in that department, but, um, but I do think that younger generations are, are demanding greater diversity and, and they're very particular about identity of the author in picking their and picking their and picking the, and the match with the yes, subject. Yes, yes exactly. I think that's true. Yeah, I think it comes back to the question of the definitive thing too, which is interesting. And I think people don't certainly younger audiences and readers don't really use that word. Um, it seems so certain. It seems so closed off, and it seems slightly boastful. Um, they'd rather have something that opens up rather than something that's closed. Um, yeah, I was uh, watching C-SPAN the other day. It shows you my wide range of, <laughs> but there was a, uh, it was a program about uh, ranking the presidents. And what was interesting was that uh, Lyndon Johnson has soared mm -hmm. and Andrew Jackson has plummeted um, in a large part because new generations of historians are looking to Lyndon Johnson as the guy who pushed the Civil Rights Act through and the Voting Rights Act through rather than the evil Lyndon Johnson that sent us to war in Vietnam. And younger generations are looking at Andrew Jackson and saying this was a slaveholder who was uh, committed genocide against uh, Native Americans. Um, so I, 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 I think that, that each generation sort of looks at its historic figures through the prism um, of its times. Well, I was just going to say, I, just as a plug for the kids, that um, I do represent some children's fiction writers, and so I'm, I'm and, and I have children myself. I'm kind of plugged into that generation, and they are voracious readers, and that is a good thing for the industry in general. I mean, you you know, say what you want about you know Divergent and the Hunger Games, but those books are training kids to read books, and and kids read physical books. So that's all good for, you know, 20 years from now when... Yeah, and that, uh, what was that, that little wizard guy? Yeah, that yeah, wizard yeah. guy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I had lunch a couple months ago with the agent who represents Hidden Figures, and she told me that at that time, so throughout the whole fall, the Young Readers edition of Hidden Figures, yeah. which is a slightly modified version of the adult version. It's like the language is a little bit simpler, it's a little bit cut down, the cover is more sort of teen looking. Um, that book was outselling the adult edition. And the adult edition was selling hugely well. Yeah. So that was really encouraging to me. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's move to the next step, which is that um, you've written your first biography for uh, a university press, or you've written a couple of biographies, maybe one for a commercial press, and you're, so you're, you're midway through your career. Is there anything that you need to change about yourself 
Um, do you need to do more social media? Do you need to try to create a brand? Is there, are there tricks to the trader or is it still just writing the proposal, going into the stacks um, and letting the art come forth? I would love to know what you guys, if you guys think this is right, but I, I think it is the case that the, the way the market works, that um, readers respond to subjects, except in the case maybe I think of, of the um, more identity-driven mm -hmm. books, mm -hmm. but let's say sort of biography generally. Um, and so I think that's a case of, um, uh, yes, going back into the stacks and, and finding a, a good subject match. Yeah, yeah. I think it's nice if, um, yes, I mean, I think you want good material above all else. What, what, you know, if you don't have that, what do you have? Um, but I think it's good to demonstrate some effort to be accessible to the public, um, to show that you're sort of practicing doing that, to start owning your subject out in the larger world. Um, that can mean social media, it doesn't have to. Um, it could mean getting on NPR, it could mean uh, writing an op-ed, it could mean you know, giving a series of talks in some fashion. I have an author who, he was an academic historian, now he's writing a popular book, but sort of in between the two, he was giving all of these talks on Hamilton and what Hamilton the musical got wrong, and he was booked in like 30 cities um, because he, had, a, had an expertise in early America, and he wanted to, and he had the aspiration, he had aspirations to write a trade book, and he wanted to sort of figure out what his like voice and his style was in reaching out to a wider public, because a lot of academics don't get a lot of experience doing that unless they really, really go for it. Um, they're not sort of offered that at, in their institutions. So I, I think it is useful to um, have the great subject uh, and to start figuring out how to be part of a larger conversation, and at the same time, in that larger conversation, sort of own your expertise. So um, Sue Prudeau, who's the author of the Nietzsche biography I mentioned, she had written um, several books that were all published by Yale University Press in the UK. She lives in London, and that book was under contract with Yale University Press in the UK. And when her longtime editor was let go um, as an act of loyalty, she canceled the contract, hired an agent, and then found the new publisher, which was me, um, entirely. And I don't think she changed a thing. I think she just had the same material she already had, three chapters, either the same proposal, maybe updated a little bit. But um, I don't know that you have to do anything different. All you have to do is think of, if you're writing for a university press in particular, you're probably thinking about your professional world and your peers and your colleagues and scholars. And if you're writing for um, a trade press, you want to be thinking about that plus others. Um, and there's a way to do both. It's about thinking of who you're writing for. So part of the great thing about these conferences is networking. And already this morning, I've talked to uh, Carl Rolson, who, and at the discussion at our breakfast table, was about getting the rights to your work back after the commercial publisher is finished with it, and then either self-publishing on Amazon or uh, uh, doing the audio by yourself. And that this is a small, I mean, it's only enough maybe for one night out a month, but it's still, if you at the end of life, if you've got 10 books, it could be a couple of thousand dollars um, a year. Is this something that, I mean, do books go through the, the ownership cycle faster now, and is this something that, that authors should be thinking about? I, I don't know that the cycle is faster now, but I would like to mention one thing that um, uh, some authors of mine have availed themselves of, particularly if they have older books, before the audio market started to expand, is that, uh, and I 
actually hate to be promoting Amazon, <laughs> however, um, they do have a program which is essentially a kind of self-publishing audio program where you can record your book and they will merchandise it the way they do all other books. Um, and it's been a great, it's, it's actually been a great way to um, for, again, older books, or if, if your publisher has decided not to exercise audio rights, you, they have made a platform where you can do that for yourself. So I'm not, I'm not myself totally in favor of just throwing a book up on Amazon. I don't think you get anything out of that, but, but I think the audio version of it is probably different. And there are publishing organizations or houses, firms, that specialize in going out and getting books that have been where the rights have expired by the original publisher and then republish. and to republish. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, there's a, a company called Open Road Media, and they do a little bit of print publishing, but really they're an electronic mm -hmm. book publisher. Mm -hmm. And they, um, especially if you're an author with a long backlist, um, meaning you know books you've pub several books that you've published for you know uh, over a long period of time, um, really just if you have a lot of books in your past, uh, then they they like to take whole chunks of out of print books um, by authors and republish them in electronic form. One last question that has infuriated, puzzled, and um, intrigued me, which is that, um, so I write about political figures, and people say, well, what take are you going to take on this? And my answer is, well, I'm a biographer. I write about you know, a human being, and they say, well, whoa, 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 but, but, you know, are you a Fox News biographer, or are you an MSNBC biographer? Is there any advantage to a political biographer to staking out one side or the other um, and letting their either their own personal politi political inclinations or their commercial greedy side come out and say, well, I'm writing a book for the Fox News audience or I'm writing a book because I'm going to write a book that gets me on Rachel Maddow? Um, or is, is, is the rule just to you know, follow your heart and be a, a true biographer? Do you mean in terms of the writing of the book or in terms of how you promote the book? Um, the writing of the book. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I would not want an author to do that in the writing of the book. I think that um, I can smell it, editors can smell it, and most importantly, readers can smell it if it's not genuine scholarship and you know a real passion for what you're writing. There's a cynicism in that that I think people can feel. But I mean, let's let's be. I mean, I th I think that if there's anything about the current media landscape, you, I think it's probably true that you could sell that book. Like, you could write a book for the Fox News audience. I mean, I don't think any of us would be interested in a book that was, that, or particularly a biography that was kind of slanted in that direction. But I think oh, the, I, but I actually the, don't mind a slanted biography. I think that's actually an interesting play with form. Um, it's more that if you're doing it for market-driven reasons, that's, I don't even think those, oh, that's that interesting would distinction. Succeed, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's you a don't. Good you, you don't actually know that world. You. That's not your community. Mm. You. That's not how you craft a smart book. A slanted book is okay, but a not smart book is not okay. Yeah. Okay. Can we have a round of applause for our book professionals? You just heard highlights from a panel discussion during Bio's 2019 conference, featuring agents Catherine Flynn and Sarah Burns publisher Tim Dugan, and moderator John A. Farrell. We'll feature more highlights from BIO's 10th annual conference next week. You can read more about BIO on our website, biographersinternational.org.
I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palmer created our theme music. And until next time, thanks for listening and have a great day. <laughs>